Bible scholar A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he followed that quote by saying this, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So this is big and it's true of everyone that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason for that is because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So this is true for all of us, even for people who don't believe in a traditional version of God. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, a person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think that our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our heart, but our worship will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for we are worshiping, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. And so here it is. What dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives. Or to say it with the title of this sermon, we become what we worship. So C.S. Lewis said this rightly. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. So the reason that the long story is a terrible one is because we tend to worship things that aren't God. And the things that we worship are not happy masters. As we choose them, they begin to control us and our lives become ravaged by false worship. So the Bible says worshiping false gods is wrong. And it's not just an act of jealousy on God's part. But to have someone who isn't God over you actually creates destructive patterns in your life. And that's what the passage of the Bible that we're looking at today is going to teach us. As we worship things that aren't God, we become like what we worship. And those things begin to ravage us and control more and more of our lives. And so let's read the passage today. It's Romans 1 verses 21 to 25. Friends, listen, this is God's word. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what this passage says is that these people, that people know God, they knew him, but they didn't honor him as God, nor were they thankful and so they traded in God. They traded God in. It was like they went to the return line and said, I want to give back God so I can buy something else. 
They traded in God's glory and they worshipped and served creatures. Things that were made. And God's response, what happened to them was that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. And so when we worship things that aren't God, there's a point where God will actually stop holding us back. If we push down the truth about God, if we hide the truth of God in our lives, if we suppress the truth and give ourselves to worshiping other things, to addictions, to sinful habits, to preoccupation with other things, God will dejectedly and sorrowfully let us go into these things and will become enslaved to them. Just a few chapters later in Romans, Paul says this. He says in Romans 6, verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And so there's this idea that we become enslaved to sin by presenting ourselves and obeying sin. And in our passage this morning, the slavery to sin is described. Um, where verse 25 says, therefore, I'm sorry, verse 24 says that therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And so I want to focus real quick on this word dishonor. Um, and what we see here is that false worship leads to dishonor. Dishonor. Now, so to understand what dishonor means, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word dishonor. Maybe you think about something that makes you embarrassed or ashamed. In order to understand what dishonor means here in the Bible, we need to understand what honor means. Um, and the Bible teaches us that God made human beings in his image. And in Psalm 8, there's a prayer and a song in the Old Testament in Psalm 8, it says that God, when he made human beings, that he crowned us with glory and honor. That we were crowned with glory and honor. That God made us to be glorious and honorable as human beings. Now, our false worship, our slavery to sin makes us dishonorable. When we worship God with our whole lives, when we worship and obey him in every area of our lives, when we seek out and make efforts to try to honor him, to try to do what he wants, try to show that we care about him, to try to love him the way he deserves to be loved, to try to love other people the way he calls us to love him, to be intentional in our workplace and to be intentional in our relationships and with our time. When we honor and worship and obey God in every area of our lives, that's when we become the best versions of ourselves. And when we are that way, we shine with the glory and the honor of God because we are his images on earth. And so this word dishonorable, it actually, it's the beginning of a major theme that's of vital importance in the book of Romans. It's this theme of honor and glory. And I know that a number of you are actually very familiar with the book of Romans. You have 
studied it, you've heard it talked about, you've seen it as one of the best books in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, and yet I want to suggest to you that, at least in my experience of deep and thorough study, I have not seen very many people who understand and bring out this theme of honor. Now, in three weeks from today, we're actually going to look in depth at this theme of honor and glory. It'll be part of our next sermon series. But it's important for you to understand this theme because dishonorable, the become dishonorable in verse 24 is huge. So let me just give you a definition, okay? Definition of dishonoring. So dishonoring then is it's thinking, being, and doing anything less than the strong, faithful, understanding, willing to be vulnerable, servant leading, others blessing, cultivator of multiplying life, image of Jesus Christ that you were designed to be. That's what it means to be dishonorable or to have your bodies dishonored. Okay, let me say it again. Dishonoring then is thinking, being, and doing anything less than the strong, faithful, understanding, willing to be vulnerable, servant leading, others blessing, cultivator of multiplying life, image of Jesus Christ that you were designed to be. This is what God made us for. It's to be this kind of person, to be someone who is strong, faithful, understanding, someone who's willing to be vulnerable, someone who's a servant leader, someone who blesses others, someone who cultivates multiplying life in other people and in everything that they do, that they would image Jesus Christ. Like that is the honor with which we were created. And anything less than that is dishonoring. And so this definition of dishonoring, let it show you what's possible for your life. Let this definition show you the honor that Jesus actually has in store for you and for your future. This is what God is doing in your life. He is renewing you to be this kind of human being. And this is why, frankly, why our vision statement as a church is what it is. This is why we believe that it's renewed people who can actually renew the city of San Diego for the glory of God. Right? Our vision is a renewed city through a renewed people to God's glory. And we believe that these are the kinds of people, these kind of honorable people can actually have this kind of influence and this kind of impact. And friends, this then is why false worship is so bad. False worship, worshiping things that aren't the true God, this dishonors us. This causes us to fall short of God's design for our lives. And we fall short of the influence that God has created us to have on others. And this is foolish because of what we end up worshiping. Okay, and again, worship isn't just what we think about during religious ceremonies. It says in our passage that these people worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. See that in verse 25? They worshipped and served. And so this is where we end up in our serving. We end up becoming like what we worship. 
And so I just want to tease out for us a couple of areas or or three different areas where we find ourselves worshiping things that aren't the true God. We're going to walk through some of those things and then see how the gospel interrupts our false worship. And so first, in the area of addictions, addictions is an area we find out that we worship things that we can't, uh, that, that aren't God. And the question here to understand your addictions um, is what can't you resist? Right? What are the things in your life that you can't resist? So just some big areas. There's drugs and alcohol. There's sex and porn. And then there's also like the need for control. Some people are addicted to the need for control. And in these areas... Um, these things leave us less human. These addictions corrupt us as human beings. Okay, drugs and alcohol, that's relatively obvious. Um, it leaves you less human. If you've known anyone who's been addicted to drugs and alcohol, the substance controls your life. Not only does it demand your money, but it controls your time. It controls, you end up orienting your life around your addiction. Um, plus, when you're high, when you're drunk, you are not yourself. And so these things are you not being who God's created you to be. Think about sex and porn, right? Sex and porn. Sex is an amazing gift from God. Sex was designed by God and gifted to human beings. And it was designed for pleasure, for creativity, for service, and for intimacy. Sex was designed to be the physical expression of total commitment for life. Now, it's when people have sex outside of that marriage commitment, they are then doing with their bodies what they haven't committed to in life. People who are sexually active outside of marriage, they end up seeking sex selfishly, it ends up being about them and their pleasure. Um, and ultimately, what ends up happening is that they begin as relationships that are sexually active, as relationships um, begin and then break apart and begin and break apart. There's a dynamic that ends up creating people who are afraid ultimately to commit because all their previous relationships didn't work out. So one woman who had a sex addiction articulated the dehumanizing process of sex like this. She said, I don't know how to have sex in a healthy way. And relationships, forget it. To be vulnerable and intimate is scarier to me than scorpions. So you see here, like this is the dynamic, this is the damage that leaves us less human. And then with uh, the need for control over people, over situations, I mean, in some ways, power and control, like this is the center of all of our addictions. Um, we want to feel like we're in control. We want to feel like we are choosing our own path that we can make and bring about the outcomes that, that we want to see. Um, but really, the truth is the only thing we have power over is which master we are going to serve, whether we're going to serve God or serve others. So that's in the area of addictions. So secondly, I want to talk about the area of habits. 
habits, because we have habits. And the question here for us to uncover false gods in our lives or idolatry in our lives um, is what reactions control you? What are the reactions that control you? So let me just give you a few <clears throat> that you can help work through with me. First, be like something like anger. Right? Are you controlled by your anger? Um, are there situations where you cannot help overreacting? Or you just, no matter how hard you try or how much you want to, you can't react without love and understanding. I mean, think about this, right? That's, that could be an addiction to anger or not an addiction, but that, that's, a, that, that's a habitual sinful response where your anger actually has control over you, where you are serving your anger instead of serving God. And that is the definition of an idol or a false God. And this kind of anger, this disfigures us. Um, if we really take a look at it, anger like this makes us monstrous. Whether we're actively aggressive toward others, you know, where we are yelling and screaming, where we're hurting other people verbally, uh, emotionally, um, or worse, physically. Whether we're actively aggressive toward others or we're deceptively passive aggressive. Again, we are less human when we sin in our anger. We are dishonorable people in those ways. Another habit that we can find ourselves enslaved to is, is the need to have the approval of others. Right? When you base your life on what other people think, when you orient your life around the approval of others, um, again, you lose yourself. You lose what God has put into you. You become less the human that God created. Um, you, in effect, you're turning down your gifts, your passions, and you exchange them for what other people expect from you. Does that make sense? And so that reaction of letting the, the opinion of others and the approval of others control who you are makes you less of the human being that God wants you to be. And then a third reaction that can become a habitual reaction that can control you, um, we could call it moral superiority. Um, the reaction that you feel like you're better than other people. Um, N.T. Wright said this, he said, we have to remind ourselves that Romans 1 is followed by Romans 2 with its emphatic warning against a moral superiority complex. Paul's most damning condemnation is reserved not for people who engage in idolatry, but for those who adopt a posture of innate moral virtue while themselves are failing in their most basic vocation, and that is to be the light of the world. And I would say that itself is a worse form of being subhuman. Atheist writer David Foster Wallace, um, he saw how dehumanizing this was too, and he said this. He said, if you feel good about yourself when you can tear down all those bad people out there, you will then be consumed by a critical and a judgmental spirit. And if this feeds your soul, 
then you have to keep doing it to stay meaningful. Your critical spirit will consume you with bitterness and self-righteousness. It will never end. It will never be enough. And so this sense of moral superiority is a reaction that is enslaving. It's a false God that dehumanizes us. And I want to just say, this is why our political culture is so screwed up. Because we have both a White House and a media who are so hell-bent on being morally superior to the other that they seem unable, they seem unable to do anything but vilify the other. Like both sides are so incredibly morally superior to each other, at least in their own minds, um, that they cannot say anything good about the other. And this isn't just about them. I'm not just saying this about them, but I'm saying like, look, let's look into our hearts. Let's look into who we are and how we treat other people. And if there's anybody that we feel morally superior to, I guess I just want to stop and ask, wait, wait, hold on. What do we base that on? How are we better than anybody? If you're here in this church, you have admitted that you have fallen short of God's glory, that you have failed to be the dishonoring human being that God created you to be. The fact that you're here, the fact that you call yourself a Christian, you have admitted the fact that the only reason why you can stand in the presence of God is because of his forgiving grace. And if the reason you've been rescued from your dehumanizing personality is because of God's grace, then why would you ever act better than anybody else? And so this calls us away from moral superiority, calls us back to an appreciation of the grace that fills our lives and how God has changed us himself. And so we have addictions, we have habits. The third section of idolatry that we find, I think, in our own lives, it helps us to see how we become what we worship is a category called preoccupation. And the question you want to ask yourself here is, what occupies your mind? What do you think about all the time? What do you obsess over? Because when we obsess about things, that is a form of worship. What do you want really, really bad? The longing of our hearts can be an indication of things that we may be worshiping. And so this kind of preoccupation is worship. So first and foremost, I want to say, let's talk about money and stuff. Money, stuff, even the need to achieve career success. Right? When we grant sovereignty in our lives, uh, to how much money we have. We become preoccupied with the money that we have or the money that we don't have. Um, we become enslaved. It becomes an idol. We begin to make decisions around the acquisition of money. And so I want to read to you just some quotes um, just to help us understand this. 
I'm going to want to read to you some quotes from people who have achieved way beyond what most of us would consider financial success so that you can hear what they have to say about it. Okay, now Wall Street workers have some of the largest paychecks in America, but for many of them, it's still not enough. Not because they still can't afford what they want after they're paid, but because they're addicted and will never be satisfied. One man, his name Sam Polk, in an article said this. He said, I was 30 years old. I had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason. An alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. He goes on to say, I wanted a billion dollars. It's staggering to think that in the course of five years, I'd gone from being thrilled at my first bonus, $40,000, to being disappointed when my second year at the hedge fund, I was paid only $1.5 million. And then he said this about himself. He said, over the next five years, I work like a maniac and began to move up the Wall Street ladder. And then now, working elbow to elbow with billionaires, I was a giant fireball of greed. I'd think about how my colleagues could buy Micronesia if they wanted to, or become the mayor of New York City. They didn't just have money, they had power. And then he closes by saying this. He said, I generally think that if someone's rich and believes that they have enough, they're not a wealth addict. But on Wall Street, in my experience, that sense of enough is rare. The money guy doing a job he complains about for yet another year so he can add $2 million to his $20 million bank account seems like an addict to me. And so again, I'm sharing this with you because I want you to hear what people who are addicted to money say after they've gotten it all so that you realize you don't need to follow down this path. In addition to money and stuff, things that we get preoccupied are like physical appearance. Think about issues of body image or food. When we obsess about how we look, when we obsess about what we wear when we obsess about what we eat or don't eat, it sucks up more and more and more of our identity. It demands more and more of our energy and our time. We see it everywhere. We can't stop thinking about it. And then we also, here's the negative thing also, is that this word becomes even more damaging because we inevitably compare ourselves to the standards of beauty and appearance in the culture and these are standards that no matter what we do, we will never, ever measure up. And I mean, how could we? Because not only are these standards set by an incredibly tiny percentage of the population that nobody else could actually be, but even the people who are chosen are not actually the images that we see. Because they're all photoshopped. All of them. They're all made into caricature. They're actually, that's just so funny. Right? Wait, wait, because, because, oh, we're too smart to bow down to idols and images. Right? And yet, look at what we are preoccupied with. Our definitions of beauty are actually images of real people. They're not even real. 
Nobody looks like that, not without computer enhancement. And so this is a serious idolatry with the preoccupation that we have with beauty and with body image. And then this area of preoccupation, um, just a third category here is, is relationships and the need to be in a relationship. Relationships are not bad. They never are. Dating relationship, marriage relationship. But when we have to be in a relationship in order to be happy, we then get consumed by it. We become less human because we're going to make decisions ultimately that aren't good for us. We'll compromise. Our fear of losing the relationship can cause us to compromise and put your relationship actually ahead of your relationship with God. And again, this makes you less than the version of you that God wants you to be. So I want to share with you another quote that I've shared with you in the past. This is from Jim Carrey. This is what he says that kind of wraps all of this stuff up. And he says, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know that it's not the answer. So this is someone who has been there and done that. He's achieved success um, in just about every way. And he's telling us, look, these things that culture presents to us, these are just idols that can't deliver. He's telling us, look, if you are tempted to try to scale this ladder, any number of these ladders that we've described today, I'm telling you that even if you do get to the top, you're going to find out that the ladder is leaning against the wrong building. There is no happiness at the end, at the top of this ladder. There's only emptiness. Now, the hard part for us is that most of us don't get to the top of the ladder. Most of us spend our whole lives and nobody ever questions us getting there. And so we need people like this who have been to the top and can tell us, hey, I'm climbing down. I've jumped off. I'm finding it from another place. And in the moment, if you can hear this, it'll cause you to stop in your tracks. It'll cause you to realize that, wait a second, the things I'm addicted to, the habits that I have, the preoccupations that I have, I am not going in the right direction. And the good news for us today, the reason why Paul is even talking about this stuff in the book of Romans is because Jesus has come to interrupt this story. Okay, Jesus has come to interrupt this story of idolatry and emptiness. Jesus has come to interrupt this story of us being enslaved to things that dehumanize us. Remember that passage in Romans 6, verse 16, well, that says that don't you know that if you obey anything, you become a slave of sin. You can become a slave. Well, Paul goes on in Romans 6, 17 and 18, and he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Friends, this is the good news. When you believe in Jesus, you are set free. We interrupt this story with the gospel. Repent. Turn from this false worship. Turn from these idols. 
and worship the God who made you and who loves you and came to save you. Paul isn't going after the idols in our lives to rail against people. He doesn't do this because he wants to put people down. Paul goes into all of this because he's announcing the good news of Jesus and he wants us to know that there is a solution to even this. There's a way out of the stuff that enslaves us. There's a way of freedom. And so we interrupt this story. Jesus has come to show us God. And oh my goodness, like this God that Jesus has revealed. Jesus is God who's entered into our lives. And though Jesus was never enslaved by sin, Jesus was punished for our enslavement to sin. Jesus was treated and judged and handed over to all of the dehumanizing and crucifying power of evil and sin on the cross. And he lived through it. God himself entered into the corruption of the world and he came out the other side. And so it's true that we worship our way into the mess. And if that's true, then the only way out is also to worship. You worship your way in and you worship your way out. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so the key here is it's knowledge. It's knowing God. It's having a relationship with him. It's worshiping him. As you worship him, as you increase your knowledge of who he is and what he's done, as you begin to walk and follow and learn about him in the following of him, you will worship your way out of addiction. You will worship your way out of habits that enslave and dehumanize you. You'll worship your way out of being preoccupied with things that destroy you. So I want to close by just talking very quickly about how specifically do you interrupt your story? Whether you're Christian, enslaved to sin, or you're not a Christian and you're enslaved to sin, how do you interrupt your story? First, be preoccupied with Jesus. What occupies your mind? Let it be Jesus and the salvation that he has brought. Let it be Jesus and the power of his honorable life. Let it be Jesus and the fact that in Jesus' life, he was strong, he was faithful, he was understanding, he was willing to be vulnerable, he was a servant leader, he blessed others, he cultivated multiplying life. He was the image of God on earth. Preoccupy yourself with him and how he has given himself to you. All that he is, he gives you when you trust in him. He puts his own spirit in you to change you from the inside out. And so be preoccupied with Jesus. Second, develop habits to include Jesus in your life. Spend time with him. Think about who he is and what he's like. Think about what he would do in your workplace. 
Think about what he would do in your home life, in your neighborhood. Think about how he feels about the ways that you spend your time. Think about the ways that he feels about how you could create multiplying life, how you could encourage other people, how you could be strong and faithful in your work. Include him personally in your life by acknowledging his presence with you wherever you go. By spending time with him, reading the Bible, praying. And then third, I want you to see how your sin dehumanizes you. As we've listed these things today, uh, as we've looked at the different idols that come from addictions, from habits, and from preoccupation, stop and think about the things that are specific to you that you personally struggle with and explore how your sin makes you less of the human being that God's created you to be. In so many ways, this is what Lent is for, right? It's a time for us to stop and to give up things, to realize that what we want to do is we want to be following Jesus. And there's an element of suffering and saying no to things for Jesus' sake. And as you do this, do it with others. Don't do this by yourself. Let other people know what you struggle with and and ask them. You know, oftentimes it's so much easier for us to see how sin dehumanizes other people rather than how it dehumanizes us. And so invite somebody else to help you to think through how you are less of the human being God's made you to be when you struggle with your sin. And then as you are working on how this gospel truth can interrupt your story, you need to be looking around as well at how to interrupt the story of others. Because there are people in your life, some Christians, some who aren't, who are wrapped up in the downward spiral of the dehumanization of sin. And with them, with them, there's really two things you should do. One is to gently share how sin dehumanizes us. Gently look for opportunities to show people how these things aren't just wrong, but they're really bad for them. These things are really actually destructive in their lives. They're making them less the quality person that they want to be. They're making them less than the person of influence that they were designed to be. And as you do that, make sure that you're sharing the gospel. Don't just talk about how sin dehumanizes, but talk about the God who became human to rescue us and set us free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we see that your commands, they're not just right, but they're good. They're good for us. They're good for others. They're good for our city and the world. Oh, Jesus, would you put on each one of our hearts the particular areas of idolatry where we struggle? Would you remind us and make it clear what are the addictions that we have? What are the habits that we have? What are the preoccupations that we have that are really us bowing down to things that aren't you? Show us personally, but also in community, how these things make us less of who you want us to be. And give us the strength to make progress even this week. And Jesus, for those who aren't Christians here, would you reach out and touch them? 
Would you show them the hope and the new life that you want to bring to them? And help them to turn, to confess their sins to you, and ask for your forgiveness. We pray all this in your name. Amen.